This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Cerebral Oximetry in Pediatrics, Basic Principles and Application by Dr. Barry D. Cussman. Hello, my name is Barry Cussman. I'm an attending on the Cardiac Anesthesia Service at Boston Children's Hospital. Today I will be discussing the basic principles and application of cerebral oximetry in pediatrics. I have two relevant financial disclosures. I've received research funding from CASMED for pediatric validation studies of the four sites, and I have received funding from Medtronic to improve the accuracy of the invoice monitor. I've divided this lecture into four parts, the technologic principles, the underlying physiologic basis, the clinical application, and limitations of cerebral oximetry. Technologic principles. For any monitor, I think it is important to understand the principles upon which the technology is based so that the measurement can be more accurately applied in clinical practice. The term oximetry was coined by Glenn Millikan and refers to the measurement of hemoglobin oxygen saturation in blood or tissue. In medicine, oximetry is used in blood gas analyzers, pulse oximeters, oximetric catheters, and tissue oximetry. Tissue oximetry includes cerebral oximetry, the subject of this lecture, and somatic oximetry. Cerebral oximetry is one result of the commercialization of near-infrared spectroscopy. The terms cerebral oximetry and NIRS or near-infrared spectroscopy are often used interchangeably, but there are a number of important distinctions. Near-infrared spectroscopy is a non-invasive optical technology that illuminates biologic tissue, as shown in the brain, with a near-infrared light source. It measures the intensity of the light which has traveled through the tissue for a few centimeters by a detector, and from this it determines elements of tissue oxygenation. Near-infrared light is used for two reasons. Firstly, Biologic tissues are relatively transparent to near-infrared light. And secondly, the absorption spectra of the chromophores involved in tissue oxygenation are more easily distinguished in the near-infrared range. So looking at the figure where absorbance is plotted against wavelength, in the near-infrared wavelengths between about 700 and 1000, you see that the red curve representing oxyhemoglobin and the green curve representing deoxyhemoglobin are quite distinct, whereas the visible portion of the spectrum, there's a lot of overlap. With near-infrared spectroscopy, it's possible to measure the concentrations of oxyhemoglobin, deoxyhemoglobin, total hemoglobin, the ratio of oxyhemoglobin to total hemoglobin is the cerebral oxygen saturation. 
With more advanced instruments, it's possible to measure cerebral oxygen consumption and cerebral blood flow. There's ongoing research in terms of trying to measure the redox state of cytochrome C oxidase. And when near-infrared spectroscopy is used to study muscle physiology, it can measure concentrations of oxy and deoxymyoglobin. Cerebral oximetry may be defined as a non-invasive optical technology that uses near-infrared spectroscopy to measure the proportion of hemoglobin within the sample volume that is oxygenated. So as I mentioned earlier, oximetry is a saturation. So what is measured is cerebral oxygen saturation and the unit is percentage. Cerebral oxygen saturation is a single measure of brain oxygenation. And as you will see, it is not a direct measure of cerebral oxygen delivery or consumption. What is the difference between cerebral oximetry and pulse oximetry? In the schematic shown, when near-infrared light passes through a tissue, light will be absorbed by the pulsating arterial blood, non-pulsating arterial blood, venous blood, background tissue, which is mainly water and melanin, and light will be lost due to scattering. Pulse oximetry looks at the signal from the pulsatile components of the arterial blood. This is a very small signal, which explains why pulse oximeters do not work well under conditions of systemic peripheral vasoconstriction or low cardiac output. The change in absorbance from all the other components is what's measured by cerebral oximetry. This is a very strong signal so that you can get cerebral oxygen saturation measurements in low flow states. So how does cerebral oximetry work? An optical probe or sensor is placed on the forehead. It can be placed anywhere on the scalp, but the forehead has less hair to interfere with light transmission. Near-infrared light passes from the source or emitter and travels in a curvilinear volume through the tissue underneath the sensor and is then detected by a detector. At the microvascular level, the large arterioles and arteries, as well as the large venules and veins, absorb near-infrared light completely, but the small arterioles, capillaries and small venules only absorb part of the light and a weighted hemoglobin oxygen saturation is calculated from the emerging light and represents an uncertain mixture of small arterioles, small venules and capillaries. So this is a sensor with a single emitter and two light detectives, a shallow and deep detector, sometimes referred to as a near and far detector. The depth of penetration is about half the distance between the emitter and the deep detector or the superficial detector. In this example, the distance is 5 centimeters between the deep detector and the emitter, so the depth of penetration is about 2.5 centimeters. As you can see, the shallow detector will assess changes in light intensity mainly from extracerebral components whereas the deep detector will evaluate changes in intensity from both cerebral and extracerebral components.
Spatially resolved spectroscopy is used to differentiate the cerebral from the extracerebral components. As I said earlier, the cerebral oxygen saturation is a ratio of the oxyhemoglobin to total hemoglobin concentration expressed as a percentage. The varying commercial oximeters display cerebral oxygen saturation in varying forms, such as RSO2, SCTO2, SCO2, TOI, but all represent cerebral oxygen saturation. Physiologic basis. Cerebral oximetry is a non-invasive optical technology using near-infrared spectroscopy to measure a weighted hemoglobin oxygen saturation in an uncertain mixture of small arterioles, venules, and capillaries. With cerebral oximetry, there is both an arterial and a venous component to the measurement. In most body compartments, the venous compartment is much larger than the arterial compartment. Hence, this weighted average is a venous weighted average. The arterial component represents an element of oxygen delivery, while the venous component represents oxygen demand. So, with cerebral oximetry, one can evaluate cerebral oxygen balance. There are multiple factors affecting cerebral oxygen saturation. So, saturation is a balance between oxygen delivery and oxygen demand. Oxygen delivery is dependent on arterial oxygen content and cerebral blood flow. Oxygen demand is represented by cerebral oxygen consumption. Arterial oxygen content is influenced by arterial saturation, hemoglobin concentration, PaO2, and the P50 of the hemoglobin. Cerebral blood flow is influenced by cardiac output, mean arterial pressure, PaCO2, pH, PaO2, and drugs. Cerebral oxygen consumption is dependent on the state of consciousness, temperature, and any drugs administered. So cerebral oxygen saturation is a simple measure, but represents a very complex underlying physiology. So what are normal values for cerebral oxygen saturation? As you can see on this slide, saturation values have been measured in different populations with different instruments but the average is about 68 plus or minus 10%, with 95% confident intervals ranging from 60 to 80%. I'd like to point out two things on this slide. The first is that neonates have a slightly higher cerebral oxygen saturation value than infants. And patients with chronic hypoxemia, defined as a saturation below 90%, who are well compensated, should have cerebral oxygen saturation values within the range considered normal. Clinical application. How do we use cerebral oximetry in clinical practice? So we know what are normal cerebral oxygen saturation values. We now need to know what are critical or threshold values associated with brain injury. The best data in pediatrics comes from neonatal piglet survival models, in which the piglet is rendered hypoxic and or ischemic, 
and following this is examined neurologically and after sacrifice the brain is examined histologically. Dean Kurth did a study looking at levels of functional impairment associated with cerebral oxygen saturation. Cerebral oxygen saturation data is within the red circle in this table and the values shown are medians with 95% confidence intervals. What you see is when cerebral oxygen saturation falls from the, to the mid or low 40s, you start seeing an increase in brain lactates and a decrease in power of the EEG. With cerebral oxygen saturation values in the 30s, you start seeing further decreases in EEG amplitude as well as slowing of the EEG and a decrease in cerebral ATP. As you notice, the 95% confidence intervals are very wide, and this represents the biologic variability which is present both in neonatal piglets and in humans. So one knows at what cerebral oxygen saturation value we start to see cerebral changes, but how long should the saturation be at that value before you get irreversible cell injury? Dean Kurth did a follow-up study where the cerebral oxygen saturation was held at 35%. And only after two hours were they able to detect neurologic abnormalities in the piglets and histologic damage. Another group of investigators made piglets hypoxic for 30 minutes. With cerebral oxygen saturation values in the 30 to 40 range, Although the EEG was normal, they started to see functional zone injury in the mitochondria. And with saturation values below 30 for 30 minutes, they started to see a decrease in EEG amplitude and significant injury in the hippocampus. So we don't know the exact viability time threshold, but it's likely to be somewhere between 30 minutes and 2 hours. It's also important to note that in humans, neurodevelopmental testing is very sophisticated and may pick up injury much sooner than the two hours seen in piglets. So how does one use cerebral oximetry in clinical practice? I think the best way to think about it is in terms of ranges and direction of change. So if 60 to 80% is the normal range, above this value, there's either cerebral hyperemia or a change in cerebral oxygen consumption so that supply exceeds demand. Dean Kurth has referred to values between 45 and 60 as a buffer in which the EEG is normal and brain lactate and brain ATP are also normal. In the 40 to 45% range, you see a disturbance in that the EEG amplitude begins to decrease and cerebral lactate increases, but the ATP level is still normal. In the 30 to 40 range, you start to see energy failure in that the EEG becomes flat, brain lactate is further increased, and brain ATP is decreased. And below 30%, you have the potential for cell damage. So the range of 30 to 45% is considered the viability threshold, as I mentioned earlier. 
a number of interventions have been developed to address changes in cerebral oxygen saturation. Some of the interventions are standard and would apply to any patient population, and some are more population-specific. Changes in cerebral oxygen saturation are very sensitive to changes in cerebral oxygen balance, but are not specific. The clinician needs to determine the etiology of the change, which is not always intuitive. And the clinician also needs to do a risk-benefit analysis to determine whether an intervention is good or harmful for the patient. Studies have been performed which show an association between higher cerebral oxygen saturation values and outcome, but causation has not been proven. So let's look at a standard intervention strategy. The first thing to do is check that the sensor is well applied to the forehead and is not lifting off, and that the head position is such that there's no obstruction to cerebral venous drainage. And then one needs to think of the interventions in the context of all those factors influencing cerebral oxygen delivery and consumption. So this algorithm is adapted from the Safe Boost C trial, which is a multi-center European study performed in neonatal intensive care units. So with a low or decreasing saturation, the respiratory status is evaluated in terms of a good airway, and oxygen supply. If the arterial oxygen saturation is low, the inspired oxygen concentration can be increased and ventilation can be adjusted so that one can recruit lung volume. If the PCO2 is low, minute ventilation is decreased. With respect to oxygen transport, if the hemoglobin is low, one needs to consider whether packed red blood cell transfusion is appropriate or not. Assessment of cardiovascular status, so if the cardiac outputs or the mean arterial pressure are low, interventions to improve this include a fluid bolus, an inotrope, either vasopressor or vasodilator depending on the clinical situation, and optimization of ventilation. Population-specific interventions would be in patients undergoing cardiac surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass or neurocritical care. With cardiopulmonary bypass and a low or decreasing saturation, one first checks there are no technical issues with the sensors and that the head is in a good position. One can check the aortic cannula and venous drainage for adequate placement. One can increase cerebral bypass flow and or perfusion pressure or administer vasodilator. The patient can be cooled further. A pH stat strategy can be used. If a hyperoxic strategy is not used, this can be considered. The hematocrit can be increased by either administering packed red blood cells and or hemofiltration. The patient's depth of anesthesia can be increased, and with aortic arch repairs, various perfusion strategies can be employed. It is important to be aware that not all interventions will change or increase cerebral oxygen saturation. This is data from adults undergoing coronary artery bypass graft surgery, and what you see is that 
increasing pump flow or increasing mean arterial pressure only increase cerebral oxygen saturation 62 to 67% of the time. Normalizing PaCO2 and deepening anesthesia about half the time. And increase inspired oxygen concentration about 43% of the time. And remember, interventions have risks. Cerebral oximetry is an expensive technology. And one needs to decide whether unilateral or bilateral monitoring is necessary. I believe that unilateral monitoring, that is one sensor placed on one side of the forehead, is satisfactory for the majority of situations. This is a study of preterm neonates in the neonatal ICU. Cerebral oxygen saturation values are shown in blue for left and green for right respectively, and arterial oxygen saturation in orange. And what you see is that the left and right cerebral oxygen saturations trend pretty well. They both show decreases with significant decreases in arterial oxygen saturation. But looking at the second arterial desaturation, you can see that there are hemispheric differences in cerebral oxygen saturation. And this, if this is not technical, then this is based on uh, some physiologic uh, mechanism. Similarly, in a pediatric ICU, comparing left to right cerebral oxygenation values shows very little bias, but the precision is very wide. In other words, the values track well together, but you can't always use one side to predict the other side. I would recommend bilateral monitoring in patients with cerebrovascular disease, frontal lobe abnormalities such as a stroke or tumor, anatomic differences, whether it's in skull shape, scalp hematoma or swelling, aortic arch branch abnormalities, in patients undergoing cardiac surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass, and neurocritical care. Cerebral oxygen saturation is often used as a surrogate for mixed venous oxygen saturation, because as you know, to obtain a mixed venous oxygen saturation measurement is invasive. All the studies have shown similar findings to what I'm going to present now. So this is a study of in the cardiac ICU where cerebral oxygen saturation is compared to mixed venous oxygen saturation. What you see is that there's a statistically significant correlation, but the correlation is modest. Now, it's not surprising that there's a correlation because cerebral monitors are validated by comparison with jugular bulb oxygen saturation. And jugular bulb oxygen saturation will correlate with mixed venous oxygen saturation. Now, when you do a bland element analysis, what you find is that although the bias is relatively small, in this example, 3%, the limits of agreement are extremely wide. So what this means, you cannot use cerebral oxygen saturation to predict mixed venous oxygen saturation. In a study by Quillen, also performed in a cardiac ICU, what you see is cerebral oxygen saturation shown in black and mixed venous oxygen saturation shown 
by the gray dot. If you look at box number one, the direction in change and the degree of change is similar between cerebral oxygen saturation and mixed venous oxygen saturation. But in box number two, the mixed venous saturation increases from the first to the second measurement, but the cerebral oxygen saturation decreases. So cerebral oxygen saturation and mixed venous oxygen saturation are not interchangeable. And cerebral oximetry is more useful for indicating trends in mixed venous oxygen saturation rather than absolute numbers. Now this brings us to the field of multi-site tissue oximetry. In conditions of stress or low cardiac output, cerebral blood flow is preserved at the expense of systemic blood flow, so that cerebral oxygen saturation can be a trailing indicator. So this led to the field of combining cerebral and somatic oximetry, which constitutes multi-site oximetry. Most of the work in multi-site oximetry has been in neonates with hyperplastic left heart syndrome following the Norwood procedure. Normally, the sensor, which is typically placed on the flank overlying the kidney, that somatic oxygen saturation is about 10 percentage points higher than the cerebral oxygen saturation. This is a study of neonates following the Norwood procedure where change in cerebral oxygen saturation on the y-axis is compared with change in mixed venous oxygen saturation on the x-axis. And this is a gray zone plot. And what you see by the star is that cerebral oxygen saturation doesn't significantly change, but you'd get big decreases in mixed venous oxygen saturation. Now, when the difference between the somatic and the cerebral oxygen saturation starts to decrease and approaches the same saturation as the cerebral oxygen saturation and falls below cerebral oxygen saturation, as shown by the solid gray line, which represents biochemical shock, as the somatic cerebral saturation difference decreases, you get progressive increases in tissue lactate, and hence measured lactate, and significant decreases in mixed venous oxygen saturation to the anaerobic and below the anaerobic threshold. Limitations of cerebral oximetry. The final area I'm going to discuss with respect to cerebral oximetry are its limitations. First of all, cerebral oxygen saturation is a regional measurement. As shown in the horizontal section of the brain, the sensor is in red. It's interrogating brain supplied by the superficial branches of the anterior and middle cerebral arteries. And you're using a regional or focal measurement to make inferences on global cerebral hypoxia ischemia. You can have occlusion of the vertebra brazilis system or the posterior cerebral arteries or the deeper branches of the middle or anterior cerebral arteries and not see this in a cerebral oxygen saturation measurement. The second limitation of cerebral oximetry relates to its accuracy. 
there is no gold standard for validation of cerebral tissue oxygen saturation. So with a pulse oximeter, one can compare the measurement from the oximeter with the blood gas saturation. It's not possible to obtain cerebral tissue oxygen saturation. This makes determination of accuracy problematic. Validation studies for the FDA have been performed by comparing the cerebral oxygen saturation measured by near-infrared spectroscopy with the field or reference saturation. And depending on the manufacturer, the reference saturation is determined by a combination of the jugular bulb oxygen saturation and the arterial oxygen saturation, most commonly in a ratio of 70 to 30 or 75 to 25. Now we know that these compartment sizes and ratios are not constant, so that with changes in compartment size, you do get an error in the measurements. The precision of cerebral oximeters is approximately 5%. This compares with pulse oximeters, which have a precision of about 2%. Following on from this, monitors, and I'm talking about the commercial monitors particularly, are similar but not equal. In a laboratory, the concentration of a chromophore in solution can be determined from the Beer-Lambert law in which the light's attenuation is dependent on a logarithmic function of the ratio of the incident to the emerging light. And as epsilon, the extinction coefficient is known, and d, the light length or path length to which the light travels is known, you can get a concentration of the chromophore. In biologic tissues, one needs to use a modification of the Beer-Lambert law. And this is for two reasons. First, biologic tissues cause light scattering. And this, as you see from the image, causes an increase in path length. And it causes loss of light in that light is scattered away from the detector. The second problem in biologic tissues is that there's background absorption, particularly by water and melanin. So commercial manufacturers use a modified Beer-Lambert law in which you need to add a factor shown as B, referred to as the differential path length factor, which relates to the optical properties of the tissue. You need to add G, which is light lost to scattering at that wavelength. F is the background absorption by non-oxygenation chromophores and N is the instrument error. And the different manufacturers adjust these factors in the algorithms in different manners, which are not described, and thus monitors are similar but not equal. So let me show you some examples. One study compared the INVOS to the foresight in newborns within the first eight minutes of life. At three minutes, with an arterial oxygen saturation of 65%, the INVOS read 53.4% and the foresight 61.6%. At eight minutes, with an arterial saturation of 88.4%, the INVOS read 86% and the foresight 82%. As shown in this Bland-Elpman plot, 
there is a negative bias in that the invoice reads lower at lower saturations but higher at higher saturations. So that's why I think it's important to think of cerebral oxygen saturation values not as absolute values but within a, the ranges described earlier. Another study compared the INVOS to the NERO 300 in children undergoing sevoflurane nitrous oxide anesthesia. At a single point in time, the INVOS measurement was 84 plus or minus 7% and the NERO measurement was 69 plus or minus 8%. So you could see that the, the NERO gives you lower saturation values. And when you do a bland Altman plot, you see the wide limits of agreement. The next factor to consider is sensor size and placement. Each manufacturer has different size sensors for adults and children. Here's a study, which is the one I cited earlier, looking at children under anesthesia with the INVOS 5100. So if you look at the red rectangle with the pediatric sensor on children less than 40 kilos, which is appropriate use of the sensor, the cerebral oxygen saturation is 82%. If you put that sensor on adults, the saturation is 71%. And conversely, if you put a pediatric sensor on an adult, the true saturation is 79%, but the pediatric sensor is going to read 91.5%. So use the correct size sensor for the patient. In terms of sensor placement, although statistically significant differences have been found, whether the sensors are placed towards the midline, off to the side, or a single sensor over the midline, when you look at the numbers, there's no real clinically significant difference. So in conclusion, cerebral oximetry is a non-invasive optical technology that uses near-infrared spectroscopy to measure cerebral oxygen saturation and give you some indication of cerebral oxygen balance. It is an indirect measure of multiple factors which influence cerebral oxygen delivery and cerebral oxygen consumption. It is therefore up to the clinician to interpret the cerebral oxygen saturation value in the clinical context of what's going on with the patient. The clinician should also do a risk-benefit analysis to determine whether the intervention will be harmful or beneficial to the patient. Limited outcome data exists in cerebral oximetry between interventions and outcome. I think it's important to think of cerebral oxygen saturation values in ranges and trending rather than as absolute values. And cerebral oxygen saturation is a regional measurement with inferences being made on global cerebral hypoxia ischemia. I'd like to leave you with a quote from an editorial published in 1996 when uh, the first commercial cerebral oximeter uh, was approved by the FDA. I put the word trend in parentheses because I think trend is important but range is also important 
And as cited in the editorial, it is a trend monitor of greatest value in situations in which intracranial hemoglobin saturation could dangerously change and in which changes in systemic hemodynamics and oxygenation would not predict that change. I hope you've enjoyed the lecture. Thanks for your attention. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.